0: In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis stated the following. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and magician with the same delight. I think C.S. Lewis hit a very important trend even in our our church and in our world today. Uh, Most people fall into two different camps when it comes to sermons involving demons. Uh, Some are fearful and avoidant while others are interested and borderline obsessive. Uh, Some ignore the existence of spiritual warfare altogether, hence Lewis's reference to materialists, meaning that they only consider what they can touch and they can see, while others are hyper-focused on it. And, and paralyzed by it. Uh, today, we're going to see the worst taste of demon possession that we see in all of Scripture. Uh, we're going to see a, a legion of demons, uh, likely thousands of demons, inhabiting one man. And, and yet, we're going to see the victorious power of our Heavenly Father, our Savior on earth, Jesus Christ, God who came down as man over everything. And an encounter that can hardly be called a battle at all. That's the beautiful part about this, it's not even really a battle. Uh, and I pray that as we see our Lord sovereignly reigning over everything, even evil, even thousands of demons, that we still acknowledge we can rest in the Lord while we still acknowledge Christ's power around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Um, today's uh, word is, is a tough one in some ways. Uh, we are introduced to, to just evil, pure evil, demonic evil, Lord. But we're also introduced... To another aspect of your sovereignty over evil as you cast out not just one demon but but thousands of demons showing your amazing power over everything. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are the sovereign God over creation, over good and evil, over angels and demons. No, nothing can stand in your presence. every, every one. Every angel, every demon must bow down in your presence, as we will see one day every knee and every tongue will bow down. We thank you that that we know that that all created beings will bow down to you one way or another. And Lord God, I pray that as we see this, that we're humbled by that, uh, that we know that we have hopefully repented and humbled ourselves before you in the presence of such mighty sovereignty that we have done so by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in you. If, if not, I pray that that happens today for today is the day of salvation for those who do not know you, Lord. But God, for those of us who do, may, may we be strengthened. May we not cower back as we see this evil world around us and may we just just take strength in you knowing that it's not because of our strength that we can stand against anything but it's because of how great that you are, Lord. That We, do not, we need not fear for perfect love casts out fear. Amen. So today we're going to discuss three ways that we should respond in light of the power of Jesus Christ. Number one, we should reverentially respect the power of the Lord. Aren't you glad I had you right in, respect and not reverentially? Um, It's a little tougher word to spell. Uh, We should reverentially respect the power of the Lord. So let's start with verse 26 here. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. After the miraculous calming of the storm that we saw last week, which was incredible, uh, Jesus showed his power over creation, the weather, I mean, just amazing, over the sea, just calm that spoke, peace be still, and it was still. How amazing is that? Uh, Now we see that he gets on, uh, he finally arrives to this destination, to the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, Parallel accounts call it the Gergesenes and the Gadarenes as well. There's some disagreement by commentaries, but all three of these areas are in a locality. It's probably that, that it was referred to as a place, a, a place here. So sometimes people will call this Hurricane or Taze Valley or some, some of even Scott Depot. And this, this area we're in right now has three different terms, but we, we're all still in the same location. And that's probably what we're looking at here. So once they arrive, it w- it's clear that we're on, they're on the bank of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Notice the plural. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had lived in a house, or not a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So as soon as Jesus steps off of the boat, and on the land, this demonically possessed man meets him. No, no sooner, and we already heard, heard how, how tired Jesus was that he slept through this crazy storm, and now there's no rest for Jesus. You just see his ministry just boom, boom, boom. Now he's, he's met face to face by this madman, animalistic, demon-possessed man who, who walks about naked, lives in tombs, uh, Matthew actually lets us know that there's a second man as well in Matthew eight twenty-eight. However, Mark and Luke only focus on this one. Uh, it's likely because this one is the leader between the two, uh, and this one we s- will see in a moment has many d- demons indwelling him. This doesn't make one account more reliable than another. They're both complementary. Uh, for example, if somebody was going to talk about the Chicago Bulls, any Chicago Bulls fans here? Am I, only, am I, am I it? Nobody else is a Chicago Bulls fan? Wow, I mean, I know we haven't been good for a while. Um, maybe age myself here, but in the late '80s and the '90s, people talked about the Chicago Bulls. They talked about Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, yeah, they they would mention some of the other players every once in a while, but usually be like, "Oh yeah, Michael Jordan's team." It wouldn't even call it the Chicago Bulls. That's that's who it was. Well, it wasn't that that was an inaccurate term. It was just he stood out among everyone else. So as we see this demonic duo, it's clear that this one stands out far and overshadows the other guy who is there as well. And so. Luke and Mark focus in on the, the, the real leader of this demonic duo. Verse 28 is pretty interesting. So when this man sees the demons, or when this man who has demons in him sees Jesus, the demons cry out for mercy, and they acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the Most High God. Actually, this is probably one of the most clear testimonies we've had in Luke from anyone else saying that this is God himself, the Son of God. And it comes from demons. How amazing is that to see that the demons know who Jesus Christ is before people do? A lot of the people in the crowds had no idea who this man was, but yet they do. They know. And what are they doing? They're crying out for mercy. Well, why, why give such a response? Well, we see in the next two verses that, that Luke lets us know something's happened that hasn't been filled until now. Verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So we're told that Jesus had commanded this demon, we know demons, demons, uh, plural, to come out of this man and know that singular pl- pl- uh, pronouns have been used thus far, but that's about to change. is Verse 30, he says his name is Legion. Now, Jesus knew that this was a legion of demons in here. He wasn't surprised that there were more than one uh, when he asked the name that. This is for the sake of the disciples, those who are around him, to understand what is going on. This isn't just a man-to-man fight. This is a thousands of men to one God-man, but it's not a battle, as you'll see in a little while. Uh, you know, for, 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 for the world, they see thousands of demons versus one man. He didn't have a chance, but we'll see. That's not how this goes. And so a legion of Roman soldiers could measure up to 6,000 men. Uh, that was actually the average, what we usually saw in the Roman legion. And we know that there's probably at least 2,000, because Mark's account lets us know there were 2,000 pigs that they're going to end up in, and we'll see that in a moment as well. So this man... Demon possessed man, Legion, as he calls himself. The demons call themselves inside of him. There's 2,000 to 6,000 most likely demons in this one man. Is there any more terrifying account than that? Can you imagine the disciples hearing him say, "My name is Legion," and I'm sure it probably sounded pretty scary. It was probably in this dark voice too. You know, I mean, you just kind of imagine how scary. I mean, I'm sure they probably needed to go change their pants after this was over. How how intimidating and scary that would be thousands of demons, a legion, because they knew legion, all of a sudden, 6,000, like legion, like a legion, that's my name, legion, that is pretty terrifying, but praise the Lord, they'd already seen Jesus calm a storm, they'd seen him cast out a demon here and there as well, but I don't know if we ever saw him do this, and we know Mary Magdalene had a few demons in her, but not 2,000 to 6,000, this is a different ball game, like, okay, Jesus, I know you're powerful, but can you do that? Like, this is a pretty, pretty big, uh, you're, you're the underdog here, it looks like. It looks like we were outnumbered pretty significantly. And this man was pretty violent and must have been pretty vile-looking because he would break, supernaturally break shackles. He was a violent man. They would try to, to contain him and put him under guard, but what he would do is break the shackles and run off into the desert. And Mark actually tells us not only did he harm other people, most likely, but he harmed himself as well. The demons would harm the man himself, Mark five. 5. They would torment him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So not only did these demons terrorize people in the area, they terrorized him as well time and time again. Can you imagine a worse state of a man at this point? If you, I can't imagine a worse state of any man in the history of the world than where this guy is right now. If there's anybody that's unsavable, that's not reachable by God, this is him. Thousands of demons, he, he's harming other people. He's harming himself. You, you can't contain him. He goes off into the desert. And then we'll, let's just see what Jesus does. This guy's at the top of the list of most likely to not be saved. Verse 31. And they begged him, this is the legion of demons, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Mark told us 2,000 pigs, right? And they begged him to let them enter these so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep steep bank into the lake and drowned. I really don't even need to preach this. This is just so cool. Just like, like look at this, like, wow, what just happened? Like, you know, you kind of have to give this, like, double take. That's in the Bible? If anybody hasn't read the Bible a lot and you read things like this, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Anybody that calls the Bible boring, I mean, there was a bunch of demons just got thrown into pigs, and the pigs ran down and drowned. Like, this is pretty interesting stuff. I haven't read any good books that are that cool. I'll be honest. Like This is pretty neat. And, and, and you're seeing Jesus just commands this. And so they plead for him to be merciful, and not throw them into the, into the abyss. If some of you may be like, well, what's, what's the abyss? Well, the Bible teaches us that the abyss is referred to as a bottom, bottomless pit in Revelation 9, 1 through 2, meaning you never land. You feel like you're falling forever, but you actually never hit bottom. Can you imagine that for some of you who have a fear of heights? That would definitely be a hell-like place for you. Um, and then we see in Second Peter 2, 4, uh, it's a place of gloomy darkness. Revelation 9 goes on to even mention some of these demons will be released during the tribulation. These are some of the worst of the worst demons that have been cast into the abyss because they weren't allowed to be out. And they, they were so bad, they did so many bad things that they were locked up and chained up until they would be released during the tribulation. But in the end, they, along with Satan, the false prophet, and the beast, will be bound and cast into the lake of fire for all eternity at the end of the age in Revelation twenty ten. So instead of being cast into the abyss or this holding place until they were thrown into hell eventually in Revelation 20, as we see, they begged Jesus to ask them to go into these pigs. And the next sentence, you got to read it really carefully. It says, so he gave them what? Permission. Wait, wait a minute, like th- there's... Two to 6,000 demons inside of this man. Why do they need his permission? Shouldn't they overpower him? If the stronger man would overpower him and say, no, I'm not going there. There's two to 6,000. We're going to do whatever we want to do. What do they do? They plead for their lives. They're like, we don't want to be in the abyss. We're, we, you know, gloomy darkness. They're scared to death, literally, of Jesus. Jesus is just this dude right there. For some people, they're like, well, who is this? But what do they call him? Son of the Most High God. They know he is God made flesh and that he has the power and authority over even them. And they cower in his presence. We don't need to be fearful of demons, my friends. This is two to 6,000 demons. I, I, I doubt any of you will encounter two to 6,000 demons at one time. But even then, at the name of Jesus Christ, they must flee. Wow. In his presence, they, they cower in his presence. So why do they ask to be cast into the the herd of pigs, as we already saw, they wanted to avoid the abyss. They would rather fill these pigs than be in the place of holding. However, some prominent scholars, as I was studying this, I was kind of like, man, well, what happened after the pigs drown, right? I mean, so they fill the pigs and the pigs die. Well, some scholars actually think that they were disembodied at that point and thrown into the abyss anyway, so Jesus still, <laughs> still threw them into the abyss, um, but he showed this, as a matter of fact, uh, with that. We don't know for sure, but it's definitely plausible I know for some of you, bacon is a staple, and the thought of 2,000 pigs dying is pretty sad. You know, I know some of y'all are like, oh man, man, I mean, I hope they could get them back and maybe have some bacon. Uh, However, the Jewish audience listening would have had a problem with the pigs dying. I know for us today, we're saddened by pigs dying. Um, For them, these were unclean animals. They weren't allowed to eat them. Uh, Some scholars actually believe that that some of the pig herders were actually Hellenistic Jews uh, who were breaking laws, ceremonial laws, living like Greeks and Hurting pigs, and this was a rebuke to them as well. We we don't know for certain, but we do know is that Jesus approves this request of the demons and allows them them to go into the pigs, and that they go to their doom, startled by the demonic possession. I hope I hope that as we we kind of went through this second section here, that we see the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, even over a legion of demons, and we should reverentially respect the sovereign power of the Lord. We went through most of the scripture. Now we're going to go into the second point, but we're toward the last half here. We should rightly respond to the power of the Lord. Verses 34 through 37. We should rightly respond to the power of the Lord. We'll start by reading 34 and 35. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, what had happened? The pigs, the demons go into the pigs, the pigs go drown. That's what's happened. They fled. That's a appropriate response, probably. He's like, oh, what just happened? They fly into the city, and they go, and they tell everybody what had happened, and so they, you know, go, go out and let them know what's going on. And then the people went out to, they They, they, come, they came to Jesus, so all the people of the surrounding city comes to Jesus here. It says that, that they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. It's interesting term. They were afraid. They, they, were, they were really afraid of this man whenever he was trying to beat him to death and going crazy and shrieking and cutting himself but they're afraid anyway they're afraid now because he's normal and he's acting like a normal person he's sitting at the feet of Jesus like an average Joe just sitting there learning he looks like he's in the right mind he's clothed so we're going to see two responses to the power of the Lord that was just exerted we're going to see the right response and we're going to see the wrong response we'll start with the, the right response we see the man who was healed <coughs> having the right response to the Lord. He's found sitting where at the feet of who? Jesus. He is clothed in his right mind, and Jesus is most likely teaching this man the gospel. He's most likely teaching him about forgiveness and mercy and grace and obedience to the commands of God. This man is being discipled, <laughs> discipled by no none other than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, obviously, Jesus doesn't need as much time, I guess, to disciple this man as he does because we need discipled by others, because we'll see this man stand out pretty quick. Um, but but this, this is what should always happen after someone's saved. They should be discipled. That's one of our staples of this church. But what an amazing transformation that has come. I want you to look at these different things. So consider this is before and after Jesus Christ. So he was always moving about aimlessly, and now he is sitting and relaxed. He, he was naked and ashamed, and now he's clothed. And covered. He was, he was uh, physically chained and under guard, and now he's physically able to go wherever he pleases. He was mad and, and he was madness and folly, and now he's in his right mind. He was shrieking and crying, and now peacefully resting in the presence of Christ. He was chained by sin and demons, and now he's free in Christ. This man exhibits the right response to Christ's work in his life. He's following the Lord and wants to live the Lord. He is sitting at Jesus' feet learning from the Master. He's teachable and humble, thankful and appreciative. That is how we should be too, friends, because we were chained by sin and we've been free. It may not look as crazy as this where this man is literally a madman and now he is in his right mind but we were just as lost and then we were found. How amazing is that? And all this evidence is noticed by the transformed life that he is showing and exhibiting he has gone from death to life the workings of christ and his life are obvious but what about the wrong response let's look at verses 36 through 37 and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear so he got into the boat in return we saw in verse 34, the people who observed what had happened went and told all the people of the area. Now, all the people of the area, obviously, this man had quite the rep. He had quite the reputation. If, if, if you go out and tell somebody, oh, this person's coming, you're going to get a lot of people to come, maybe if it's something. But it as is everybody, everybody from the whole surrounding area. So we're probably looking at thousands and thousands of people. They all come to see this man who had terrorized their area for a long time. We don't know how long, but it had been probably quite some time. And they come to see this madman who's been healed with Jesus sitting in his right mind. You'd think their response would be like, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. This guy has terrorized us day in and day out. And thank you so much. You've you've made our lives so much better. Our kids can play in the street again because they're not going to have some crazy dude try to kill them. Like, isn't this amazing? You know, we're able to just go and walk and do whatever we want to. Because we don't have these guys living in tombs that are coming out trying to terrorize our town. should have humility and reverence for Christ. They've seen a wonderful miracle. They've seen this man made new. But their response is yet another great example that people will not believe even if they see a miracle. I've had a lot of people tell me, well, if Jesus came back and he told me personally, then I would believe. If, If Jesus would turn water to wine in front of me, I'd believe. If he healed somebody, if he made somebody that was paralyzed walk, then I would believe. No, they wouldn't. I mean, here this is. These people have seen a miraculous demon, like demon-possessed man set free, and what do they do? They don't believe. We've seen time and time again miracles happen, and they don't believe. And we see two important barriers that are likely preventing their belief here, given our scripture that we can see today as well. The first wrong response, number one, is the fear of economic loss the fear of economic loss. So Jesus' action in this area has probably created quite a significant financial shortfall for these people. At least 2,000 pigs have died. And and that was a a form of a livelihood. So this has cost them greatly to the point where they're not even noticing the fact that this demon-possessed man has been healed and they don't have to fear for him. They're thinking, oh man, look at all that money that went down the tubes. Wow, what are we going to do now? They're thinking about that. Many people refuse to follow Christ because of money their love of money and things of this world keep them from having a right response to Jesus Christ. They won't give Christ their whole life because what if he makes them give this up? What if they have to tithe? What if they have to give of their money in a way they don't want to give and they want to be able to do that? What if they have to give up that nice trip that they do that may cost tens of thousands of dollars, but, but God may say, oh, I want that to go to the homeless. I want that to go to the poor. I want that to go here. What if he calls me to give up my, my hobbies that cost a ton of money and take a lot of my time? Nope. no. I'm not I'm not in. He may cause me to lose what I want. This response keeps many from coming to a, a full saving knowledge of Christ. They may give Jesus a little head nod. Say, okay. But it'll keep them from going all in because they won't give up their money. First Timothy 6:10 says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money prevents many from experiencing the freedom that Christ offers. Wrong response number two, the fear of having to change. The fear of having to change. Theologian Kent Hughes asserts that the one thing we value most in our lives is to live our lives the way we want to live them. That is our idol. Have it your way. Do what you want to do. Do what feels right. Follow your heart. It's all about you live your best life now. What is that? It's it's idolatry of our own life. We are God. Everything goes around us. He states that far more people than we might imagine ask Christ to go away because of fear of life disruption. The most frightening thing about this wrong response is the last eight words of verse 37. So he got into the boat and what? Returned. He walked away. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Jesus has just shown his miraculous supernatural powers by casting out a legion of demons inside of this dude. Obviously, the other guy had a demon or two, however, they've been cast out too, both guys. He's delivered them from the most evil thing that has ever been in the history of the world we can see in the flesh as of now. That many people and one man. We've never seen a man with that many demons, at least as far as we know. And they ask him to go, and he does. Wow. These people are left lost in their sin, destined for hell. He walks away. My friends, I pray that you are not of one of those that have had that response. Jesus, go away. I don't want you. I don't want to give up my money. I don't want to give up my power. I don't want to give up my way, what I want. I pray that you've been someone who has repented of your sins, submitted your life to him, and trusted him with everything, your money, your time, your life. For he is good. He is holy. He is wonderful. He is the God who has sacrificially loved you by dying on the cross for your sins, raising from the dead three days later, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. But I think maybe the the saddest thing for me as I read this is at least they got to hear the gospel. At least they got to see it. So many haven't even heard it because we haven't spoken it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. They haven't even had the chance to walk away because no one has actually said Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He loves you. May we be that people that does go out and share that. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you have rightly responded to the powerful Lord. Finally, we see number three. We should radically reach out to others by the power of the Lord. We should radically reach out to others by the power of the Lord. Let me read verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man's right response to Christ becomes a radical missionary movement in his soul. John MacArthur states that this man went from maniac to missionary. I love that, maniac to missionary. He pleads with Jesus that he might go with him. And this reminds me of the apostle Peter, his exclamation in John 66. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This man has recognized that it is Jesus who has the words of eternal life. It is Jesus who offers salvation. It is Jesus who offers him healing. He has saved his soul from a literal hell on earth, and he saved his soul from a future hell to be revealed. And he wants more than anything to be with his Savior. And this should be the longing of our hearts as well, friends. We should want nothing more than to be with our Savior, sitting at His feet, learning from Him, spending time with Him, reading His Word in prayer. But listen to what Jesus, uh, listen to the, the Apostle Paul talk about this same struggle with going to be with Jesus and following Him uh, in, in eternity and, and staying to minister to the world. Philippians one 21 through 21-24 says this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far greater, far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I absolutely love verse 21. One of my favorite verses. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is nothing more amazing than to be in the presence of the Lord. Yet there are times, like we see here with Paul, and like we see here today with the demon-possessed man, that God calls us to go forth and serve. This is where we are right now, church. We are called to radically reach out up to others through the power of the Lord. We're called to preach the gospel in our town, in our region, our nation, our world. Most of us know the following verses by heart, but it's good to, to remember them in this context again, Matthew 28, 18 through 10, or 18, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. We miss that sometimes. Go. It's an action word. It's not just sit. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That requires going. That requires work. God working in you, not by your own work, but God working through you and in you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You're not going by yourself. You go with the power of God. These are the last verses in the book of Matthew. We're not, we're not only to obey the Lord, but we're to spread his gospel throughout the world and teach others through discipleship. Our church mission statement is this, a, a family of believers, that's the book of Acts, a family of believers, fellowship, disciple to make disciples, there's the Great Commission. Uh, so we disciple as a family, so the book of Acts, we're to fellowship, we're not to neglect meeting together, as some are the habit of doing, we're to meet together regularly, because we need to encourage one another, because guess what, Jesus is coming back, amen, Jesus is coming back, and we need to say, hey, keep going, persevere, true believers, persevere, we keep going, I know it's hard, I know there may be this problem at work, and you're getting persecuted, but keep going. You still have things to learn. There's difficulties. Well, what about this? And you can ask each other theology and learn how to live this life. Brothers and sisters, this is our last week here at our current location. And we're about to make a move to Winfield. And we've been praying over the last couple of weeks, the last few weeks here, that, that God would give us a harvest, that we would be ready to work in the fields. And I pray that we are prepared. Are you? Are you ready? If someone comes in and doesn't know who Jesus is, are you ready to tell them who he is? Are you ready to disciple them and, and go through the word with them? If I could say, hey, I want to pair you with, with him or with her, C- could I look at you and say, hey, I want you to share the gospel with them? Are you ready for that? Because God may very well do that next week. Maybe in the next couple of weeks there will be new people. And you know what? I can't disciple everyone. You all are called to disciple. It's not just pastors go forth and share the gospel and disciple people. No, it's you go and disciple and share the gospel. I pray that you are ready, that you are in prayer, that you are praying that God brings in the harvest, that we have new people that want to join our fellowship, people that want to hear about who Jesus is and how he is ready to save them from eternity and hell, how he has died on the cross for their sins. As we talked about even in growth group this morning, it's not that hard. It's actually a very simple account, but you've got to know it. You've got to know him first and foremost. You have to know the gospel. You have to know how to articulate it, you've got to practice, you've got to read, you've got to know him so that you can share him. We'll come to this verse uh, this next verse here in a few weeks, but we'll get a little sneak peek today, Luke 10:2. And he said to them, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few." Therefore, I pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I've prayed this a lot over the past few months. And my prayer has been that our laborers aren't few. I know we have people here ready to work. I know we have people here that love Jesus that are ready to do it. But are we? Are we laboring? Are we going out and sharing the gospel with our neighbors? We, we amen that idea. We're like, yeah, we need to do that. Let's go out and let's share the gospel. Let's invite people to church. Let, let's, let's go out and let's tell people about Jesus. Are we? When you look at your last week, did you share the gospel with anybody in the last week? There's people that you walked by, people that you were in the checkout line with that are going to hell t- tomorrow maybe. They may die, get in by a car. Did you say, flee from the coming wrath of God? Jesus loves you. He cares for you. Did you even think, oh, come hear the gospel? Even if I don't have the guts to share you, which you need to have the guts to do that. That is on you. You need to be willing to share the gospel, but at least invite them and say, come here." the word of the Lord. I think we all should be convicted. This is something that we're to do. This is who we are to be, not just something we do every once in a while. We, The reason we do some of our our, our, our outreaches where it's like handing out lights or or handing out Bibles or going to the park and sharing the gospel, that's not really the mission. Like, that, that's part of it. What that is, is to train us to do it. Because we're supposed to be doing that on our own. My friends, let's be the laborers. Let's be the answer to the problem of Luke 10 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's reverse that. The laborers are many, and we're ready for the harvest. It is Jesus' urge, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He's, he's saying, hey, pray about that. And I pray that you pray that not only God helps us to be that answer to that prayer, but that he also gives us more that are ready to go out as well. Again, we look at the end here actually in Luke eight thirty nine. It says, and he went away who? The demoniac who was healed. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Wow. This man obeyed the command of Jesus Christ and became a witness for the saving power of Jesus. So come to a close, I want to end with an account from Kent Hughes, a theologian, that I think really illustrates this beautifully. So some years ago, an ophthalmologist just fresh from college opened up a practice. Without friends, without money, without patrons, he became super discouraged. Until one day he encountered a blind man that was walking down the road, and he looks at the blind man, looks in his eyes and says, friend, do you want to have your eyesight restored? And the man says, of course, yes. So we'll come in the morning, and I'll take a look at you. We'll do an operation. So the man, blind man comes. The operation's performed. proves successful, and the patient states, I have not a penny in the world to pay you. I can't pay you, and the doctor says, oh, yes, yes, you can, and I expect you to do so. You will pay me. It's just one thing that I want you to do, and it's very easy. Tell everybody you see that you were blind and tell them who it was who healed you. Wow. This is what the ex-demoniac did. He heralded the news in the Decapolis, as we see the ten cities in Mark 5.20. He didn't just go in his city. He went in the ten cities. He went all around that area. The people were amazed to hear that. Friends, tell others how much the Lord has done for you. And I think sometimes when we've been saved for a while, we, we forget. We forget what it was like to be lost. We forget what it was like to be hopeless. But others need to hear that. They they, they are hopeless. They are lost. Friends, go and do likewise. You have nothing to bring when it comes to salvation, no works that you can pay to earn your salvation. But you can obey your Savior by telling everyone you meet who healed you and saved you and what he has done for you. Church, I urge you, go forth and preach the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a people... Of action, not to earn our salvation, but because we are saved. We know who goes before us, we know who is within us, Lord. Help us to be those who go and tell people what the Lord has done for us. It is a command, Lord Jesus, it is not a suggestion that you give us. We are in disobedience when we are not sharing the gospel with those around us, when we are not discipling others around us, when we are not serving the Lord and his local church. Those are disobediences to your commands. And your word says in John 14, 15, if we love you, we will obey your commands. May we be an obedient people. May you convict us where we are failing you in this. And Lord, I pray that we do not feel just this Guilt, but that we feel empowered by you, Lord, knowing that yes we're not we 're blowing it in many ways i'm sure when we look at our lives we 're sinful we 're selfish, we do the wrong things, we want to be comfortable, and these conversations about you can be super difficult with people who are hostile to the gospel uh, or, or who are not necessarily interested and, and it can be really discouraging at times, but Lord God, we we have the God who just tells a legion of demons where to go, literally. We have that type of power living within us. Not that we have that power, but you have that power, and you have that power to change any heart, any soul, to draw anyone, the people that seem the furthest away from you, you can change in a moment, in an instant, just like you did this man here. And so, God, I just pray that you help us to have open eyes, open hearts, and that we work through your power, not our own. We don't have the power to change. We don't have the power to to do what you want us to do apart from you. Apart from you, we can do nothing, your word says. So, God, may we fully rely on you, and may you open up opportunities for us to share the gospel, see souls saved, disciple them, so that they may multiply other, other disciples and converts. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. Be with us as we go out this week. May we be in prayer about the harvest. Lord, may it be plentiful. May we be laborers in the fields ready to to work and to share your word with others. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. Have a blessed week. (coughs)